What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you can probably notice that the chair next to me is empty. Unfortunately, last week, Joel unexpectedly quit. I'm not really going to go into all the details of it or anything, but basically, Joel and I had some differences of opinion on where the show was going and kind of how it was run. Yeah, we just didn't agree on things. And, you know, I had no intention of him ever leaving the show or anything like that, but he felt differently. You know, he just felt like he wanted to go pursue some other opportunities that he had. That's basically it. So that is the reason why there was no episode last week, um, because it just, I was never able to get it uh, completely done and and uploaded and all that. So I apologize for that. But yeah, Joel will no longer be a part of the Lights Out podcast moving forward. Uh, It will be just me for now until I sort of find a replacement producer for the show, which I'm already starting to uh, look for somebody else. So I will hopefully have an update on that here soon as well. That is where things are, and I'm just going to leave it at that. But with that being said, lots of exciting things happening here at Lights Out. For one, we just launched merch this past Monday. So milehiremerch.com is up, and many of you have actually already gone on there because uh, you're fans of some of our other shows like Mile Higher, The Sesh, and or maybe a fan of my wife, Kendall Ray. And we have all of the collections for all of our shows here at Mile Higher Media at milehiremerch.com. And we put out a new summer drop. Really happy with how everything turned out. Of course, I'm wearing one of the Mile Higher items right now. Uh, this is Mile Higher Colorado. There's a little UFO over some mountains. But I'm really, really happy with how the Lights Out merch turned out. I know many of you are absolutely loving it. And yeah, things are going quickly. So if you haven't checked out milehiremerch.com yet, uh, go check it out because things are selling out quickly. I'm not sure how much restocking we'll do on this collection. But yeah, we ship to pretty much anywhere in the world. Uh, I think there's a few places we don't ship to, but uh, you can get all the information at milehiremerch.com. Really appreciate all the support. It's been uh, kind of an interesting time here lately. And, you know, sponsors have gone down significantly with sort of the economy and things going on in the world. So I really do appreciate your support. And if you're not able to buy anything from milehiremerch.com, that's totally fine. No big deal. A great way you can support us for free is just by being subscribed to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, following us on Spotify, as well as following the show on social media at Lights Out Cast. And that's Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as well. So make sure you're following us at all those places. It does really help us out. But yeah, that's what's going on with merch. Really, really happy with how it turned out. Again, that's milehiremerch.com. But this episode's also brought to you by Babbel. But in today's episode, I'm going to be focusing on the paranormal case of Doris Bither and the entity haunting. This is a very interesting case, and I'm very excited to dive into it. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and dive into the story of Doris Bither. So Doris Bither was a single mother of four children when this haunting began. But many believe her encounters with the spirit world began much earlier. Not much is known about her childhood, but we do know that she was raised in an upper middle class family by two alcoholic parents. And some say she suffered from childhood abuse at the hands of her parents. At some point in her teenage years, she had a blowout with her family. And some believe it was because she had started practicing seances and reaching out to the world of the occult. Disgusted with Doris's behavior, her parents disowned her. And from that point on, she had no family, and she had to find her way through life by herself. She often drank, which made her life unstable, and she married several times, but each marriage ended in a toxic divorce. 
Through these marriages, she had given birth to four children, and each had different fathers, but she continued to raise them all by herself. They all eventually moved to a rough neighborhood in Culver City, California. Her children were between the ages of 6 and 16 during this time. Their house was small and falling apart, but they tried to live their lives like anybody else's. Before long, though, strange paranormal energy seeped into their lives, especially Doris's, and none of them got to live the simple lives that they had always wanted. Late one night, an old woman knocked on the front door of their home. Doris answered and noticed a strange look across the old lady's face. Doris had never seen this old lady before and she had no idea why she was knocking on her door so late in the middle of the night. This old lady was maybe 70 or 80 years old and she thought maybe, you know, this old lady was just lost. As Doris greeted this old woman, she quickly cut her off. Frantically, she told Doris that she used to live in this exact house decades ago. When she was a little girl, her parents bought the house, and as she grew up, she began noticing strange quirks about her home. She said that lights would flicker, objects would move. She didn't go into much detail, but she was convinced something evil occupied the house. And she told Doris she should leave the house immediately if she didn't want anything bad to happen to her. Then, apparently this old lady, after saying all this, walked off into the darkness. Confused, Doris wanted to ask the old lady a few more questions, as you could probably imagine. What do you mean something evil is living here? But by then, the old lady was already gone, like a ghost. She just vanished, and she never saw her again. At first, Doris shrugged off the warning. She thought that the old lady might have been out of her mind. I mean, think about it. If that ever happened to me, I'd probably think this person's just strung out on something or escaped the psych ward, because who just goes up to somebody's house in the middle of the night, especially at that age? and says, oh yeah, by the way, I used to live here and something very evil dwells within. But soon enough, the old lady's warnings turned out to be real. Doris got a taste of the paranormal inside her simple suburban house. Objects began shifting on their own. Doors began to creak open in the night, and Doris was even attacked by these invisible entities. As a single mother with no other family to reach out to, Doris kept these things to herself. Because again, when things like this start happening, nobody wants everybody to think that she's crazy. And she definitely didn't want her children taken away from her if somebody were to report her. But with a bit of luck, she ran into some people that could maybe help her out. In August of 1974, Doris went to a local bookshop with a friend and casually searched through the aisles. While shopping, she overheard two men discussing their paranormal investigation interests. One of the men was Carrie Gaynor. Carrie was a paranormal investigator who had just started making a name for himself, so Doris walked up to the men and told them about her haunted house and the strange lady from the other night. After this, she ended up asking Carrie for his help in identifying what was causing all the strange disturbances in her home. He took her name and phone number and told her that they would be in contact, and not long after, Carrie reached out to his associate, Barry Taft, a parapsychologist who had an interest in the paranormal and the two of them scheduled a meeting with Doris on August 22, 1974. They showed up at her sad-looking home in Culver City to ask her some questions. They noticed that her house was a tiny shack on Braddock Street. It had been in rough shape and was condemned twice by the city, but Doris somehow made it her home. As they began interviewing her, the strange thing was, Doris tried to evade certain questions. Even though she was the one who asked for help, Doris wasn't straightforward in the first interview. They asked her simple questions like, What's your name? And what's your family history, which seemed to make her very uncomfortable. When they asked her if she had any medical history, she completely evaded that question as well. It seemed like she was hiding something in her past, or there was something too uncomfortable to talk about. Frustrated, the investigators realized they were getting nowhere. 
After about two hours of interviewing her, they tried to restart the questioning process. They thought maybe a fresh start would help, but suddenly, Doris just broke down in front of them. She began sobbing and honestly just losing control of herself. She confessed that she had been a victim of abuse when she was a child, and she also had a severe problem with drinking. And as the floodgates opened, she told them about everything she had experienced over the last few months. She even listed off several assaults from invisible creatures inside of her home and a horrific rape she had experienced at the hands of three different ghosts. She said that two of them held her down in the bathroom and the third assaulted her. She even showed them a few bruises on her inner thighs and the investigators were shocked at what Doris was telling them. But they both looked at each other and thought that, you know, she's probably lying because the investigators had met people like this before. They usually had some sort of trauma they weren't dealing with and they blamed it on ghosts. In religious and supernatural literature, there are predators known as the incubus and the succubus. And these demons are known to be sexual predators that prey on the weak. The incubus is a male demon that has sex with women in their sleep. Whereas the succubus is a female demon that seduces men to feed on their flesh, blood, and soul. After multiple encounters with these demons, it's believed that the victim's mental health will deteriorate or they could even die. But Carrie and Barry didn't think that this was the case for Doris. A lot of their other cases involving a victim claiming to be raped by a ghost were usually just people who needed serious counseling, and it was basically impossible to prove that it happened. But they suggested that Doris go and see a psychiatrist. As far as they could tell, there was no evidence of paranormal activity in the home. And since Doris had been acting so strange, they thought her situation would be best handled by a medical professional. These are some pretty honest paranormal investigators, if you ask me because they honestly just felt bad, and there was nothing more that they could do. So they left her some references and wished her the best before leaving. But only 10 days later, Doris called them back again. She begged them to listen to her. Even though they thought she was mentally ill, certain things had happened since they last saw her. She swore that she wasn't the only witness this time. Her friends and neighbors had also witnessed strange paranormal events too. At first, Barry and Carrie thought it would just be another lie. But since there were other witnesses, they decided to look into it. When they first arrived at the house, a bunch of neighbors and friends were hanging around outside. They interviewed the witnesses, and each of them said they had seen strange lights appear out of nowhere. The faint lights lurked around Doris's house before disappearing in the dark. And some of the witnesses saw silhouettes and shapes of humanoid creatures out of the corner of their eyes. When they looked directly at them, they vanished. The witnesses also smelled something that reeked throughout the whole neighborhood. And according to them, it smelled like decaying human flesh. And they all pointed to Doris's house and told the investigators that it smelled like the stench was actually coming from inside her home. Still, Barry and Carrie weren't totally convinced, but they figured it wouldn't hurt to check out the house again. The first thing that they noticed when they stepped into the home was that the house seemed perfectly normal. But when they went into Doris's bedroom, it was ice cold. Even though it was late summer in California and pretty hot outside, Doris's bedroom was freezing and there was no air conditioning in this home. From their toolkit, the investigators pulled out a thermometer and tried to get a read on the temperature. But for some reason, the thermometer read the normal temperature, even though they could all feel that it was freezing inside. As they walked through the house, the investigators then began smelling a vile stench. They figured this is what the witnesses were talking about, and it smelled like a decaying carcass. But the stench would come and go in waves, and they couldn't figure out what it was or where it was coming from. Eventually, they headed back to the kitchen to ask Doris more questions. Obviously, something was going on in the home, but they couldn't figure out just what it was. Like most of their cases, they went in with a good amount of skepticism. Many cases ended up being hoaxes and frauds, so they were never quick to believe. 
Walking through the house, they found Doris in the kitchen talking to one of her friends. And as they took out their notebooks and began asking questions, one of the kitchen cabinets swung open and a frying pan lifted into the air. It then flew across the kitchen and landed in the middle of the floor. The two investigators tried to keep a level head after seeing this, and at first, they looked for a logical explanation. They walked over to the cabinet to see if there were any wires or springs, but they couldn't find any. They had seen other cases where people set up traps and devices that made it look like ghost activity, but they couldn't find anything off inside of the cabinet. And while searching the kitchen, Doris told them that she could sense that the spirit was nearby. The hairs on her arms stood up, and the investigator saw a look of terror in her eyes. They asked her where the spirit was, and she led them around the house, although they couldn't see the spirits for themselves. Carrie took out his film camera and took a picture of wherever Doris pointed to. Whatever he was taking pictures of clearly didn't want to be photographed. But he also thought maybe his camera was broken, so he ran a small experiment. Whenever Doris said that the spirit was gone from the room, he took a picture. And sure enough, those pictures came out completely clear and normal. But when the spirit returned, the pictures came out distorted. By now, the two investigators began to believe something truly paranormal was going on, so they spent the next few days investigating the house to be sure this was a legit case. Before I get further into the investigation, I'm going to take a quick break to thank Babel, and I'll be right back. For all your summer travels, whether you're going abroad or staying domestic and want to immerse yourself in the culture, now is the perfect time to start Babbel. Babbel is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, there's still time to learn a new language before you reach your destination. I've been using Babbel for quite a while now, and actually last year I went to Mexico, and before I did, I did a bunch of lessons on Babbel just to make sure I could learn the phrases that you need. You know, Even when you're traveling to a touristy place like Cancun, you know, it actually comes in handy when talking with drivers and just, you know, it's fun to actually practice your Spanish in, you know, the native country of Mexico. In high school, I took Spanish, but I didn't retain that much information because so much of it is about writing, when in reality, most of us just want to be able to speak the foreign language. Well, Babbel is perfect for that. Plus, with Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson, not an hour. So you can start having a real-life conversation in a new language in as little as three weeks. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans. But Babbel lessons were created by over 150 language experts. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. And with Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent, which is so important when speaking another language. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. And best of all, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee, so you got nothing to lose. So start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. And right now, save up to 60% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash lights out. That's babbel.com slash lights out for up to 60% off your subscription. Because Babbel is language for life. So the further that the paranormal investigators searched into Doris's home, the weirder things got. They began noticing these small trails of plasma darting across the hallways and bedrooms, and they soon realized that these lights were the most powerful in Doris's bedroom. Bright, scorching lights would tear across the walls and through the air, and then disappear within a second. Back and forth, the lights would trail through the room at incredible speeds, and at first they thought it might have been sunlight reflecting from the outside. So they closed all the curtains and barricaded the windows to make sure that there was no natural light getting into the room. They added bolts to the barricades and fastened them to the window frame so absolutely no light could get through. And once the windows were boarded up, the lights grew even brighter. And what's so weird about them 
as they had a greenish yellow glow like plasma and they were about the size of a fist. They moved rapidly across the room, but luckily investigators could get a decent picture of the lights. To try and track the lights, they put a black poster board all along her bedroom walls. Each board had a magnetic orientation on it, so if they got another picture, they'd capture when and where the light was. In one of the pictures, Doris could be seen cowering on her bed and an arc of light stretched over her. These pictures are honestly crazy to look at. I'd be interested to hear from a camera expert on these, but based on just the photos, I mean, there's arches of light and I've never seen anything like this before. And it looks like it's just suspended in the air above them. Crazy that they were able to capture this. And even where the wall met the corner at a 90 degree angle, the arc of light didn't bend with the wall. This meant that the light wasn't being projected onto the walls, that they were actually floating in the air above her. They continued photographing these arcs of light, realizing that they were most likely orbs traveling so fast that they looked like arches. The shutter speed of the camera wasn't fast enough to catch them as orbs. Skeptics say that these are actually problems with the camera lenses or issues with developing the photos, but to the naked eye of the witnesses, they were plasma green lights dashing across the room. At any given time, there were 5 to 28 people in the room experiencing these orbs. To get that many people to witness the same thing is incredibly rare as we know in paranormal cases. And this would convince Barry without a doubt that something paranormal had manifested inside of Doris's house. And after a few days passed, Doris was alone in her bedroom and she saw the orbs converge into one corner of the room. As they gathered together in a bunch, they began forming the rough shape of a human head and the torso of a man. It was hard to see, but it looked like the man was moving for a moment. He gestured into the air like he was talking, but then the orbs disappeared. Unfortunately, none of the pictures of the man turned out, which was disappointing. But they still had pictures of the strange arcs of light. They thought these orbs could have been a hallucination they were all experiencing, like an impression that was pressed into their minds. So after they developed the photographs and saw the arcs of light, they asked how it would be possible to photograph a hallucination. In the end, they knew that something paranormal was occurring in the home. But to this day, they still have no idea what the orbs were or what they represented. They had each of the visitors in the house keep notes on what they had experienced. And when the investigators went through all of the notes, they realized that everyone, nearly 25 people, had been experiencing the same things, but no one could explain it. Even though Barry and Carrie were experts in the paranormal field, they had never seen anything like this before. None of the poltergeists that they had investigated before sent green plasma lights flying around. So a few days went by, and Barry's phone rang in the middle of the night. Again, it was Doris on the other end. She screamed in hysterics, and Barry couldn't understand what she was saying. He told her, calm down, Doris, calm down. Supposedly, the bolts they had used to barricade her windows had actually been ripped off. And as she was walking into her bedroom, they shot out of the window frames and almost hit her. The investigators thought that maybe Doris just tore down the barricades, but she was a pretty small lady and Barry didn't think that she had the strength or know-how to do it. Doris begged them to come back to her home and that she desperately needed their help. So Barry and Carrie packed up their equipment, including a high-speed film this time, and they returned to the house. And as soon as they walked through the front door, bright glowing orbs flew through the air. They surrounded the investigators, Doris, and a few other friends. The investigators immediately brought out their Geiger counters, but they couldn't get any readings when the orbs were visible. The horrid smell still stunk up the house, and they still hadn't figured out where that was coming from. They also noticed that if they played certain music inside, the manifestations would intensify. They eventually called out to the spirit. They said that if the spirit could hear them, then rip something off of the wall. And right after that, they heard a tearing sound coming from one of the bolts in the house. A black metal bolt then flew across the room and struck Doris right in the head. A loud thud rang out as it made contact with her skull. The two investigators ran over to check on Doris. Luckily, she was fine, 
A small bump began to grow on her head, but she wasn't that hurt. But then again, another bolt came undone from a nearby window and landed at Doris's feet. They noticed that in a room full of people, that Doris seemed to be the one and only target. And once they realized that, an old fuse box attached to the wall near Doris began shaking, and it tore itself off of the wall and swung towards her head, but it missed. By this point, the investigators were fully convinced that Doris's house was a hotspot for paranormal activity. There was no doubt that something paranormal was actively trying to harm her. And from what Barry had seen in his years of investigations, sometimes the house was haunted by a ghost when someone's traumatic death occurred, and then that spirit becomes trapped in the house. But the majority of his cases were poltergeists. The term poltergeist in German roughly translates to noisy spirit, and it's a form of psychokinesis. This energy usually stems from a young spirit that wreaks havoc on its physical environment. Objects fly across the room and doors open and close on their own, and fires can even break out. Usually the poltergeist targets one person, and in this case, the target was Doris. Her teenage son had also told investigators that he had watched as his mother was attacked by nothing, and as he tried to help her, he was thrown across the room. And as the investigation continued, they noticed that Doris's drinking problem got worse. Whenever they were with her, she often had a beer in her hand. Strange enough, the paranormal activity seemed to happen more often the more she drank, and they thought this was probably why Doris avoided so many questions in their first interview. They might not have believed her if they had known she was an alcoholic early on. After the investigation went on for about 10 weeks, the activity died down. Carrie and Barry had brought in a few more associates who tried to communicate with the spirit or witness some of the events. On some nights, nothing happened at all and the house was peaceful. On other nights, objects soared across the rooms and invisible entities tried to assault Doris. But mostly, the manifestations seemed to die down. And after the long 10 weeks, Doris finally packed up her things and moved out of the home. She had saved enough money to move to Carson, California, about a half an hour drive south of Culver City. She tried to put the entire thing behind her and move on. She even disconnected from the investigators, but they found her a few weeks later. They decided to keep a low profile since Doris didn't want her new neighbors to know about her strange past. But sure enough, the poltergeist activity followed her to her new home. And over the next few weeks, pots and pans flew across the kitchen. Doors opened and closed on their own. And appliances turned on and off without anyone touching them. It was the same type of activity as her last house, but this time she really didn't want the neighbors to know, as she was tired of people thinking that she was crazy. So the investigators came back, but this time they packed all their gear into briefcases so that nobody could see the strange equipment they were bringing into the home. They set up an audio tape and microphones in the living room and bedroom, and one day, a vase flew off the mantle and shattered on the floor in front of them. When they listened back to the audio tape from that day, they could hear the sound of deep breathing close to one of the microphones, slow, in and out. Then as the breathing faded, they could hear a footstep on the hard floor, a dragging noise, another footstep, and another dragging noise. Like the spirit was limping around the house or dragging something along the floor, and suddenly one of the microphones shut off. Since the spirit clearly followed her to her new house, the investigators decided to conduct similar experiments to the ones they did before. Again, they put up blackboards on her bedroom walls and duct taped the edges. They thought that they might witness those strange orbs again. After they set up the boards, they watched as some invisible force began peeling the duct tape off of the walls. Once the duct tape was removed, the blackboard flew towards Doris. Excited, Carrie then told the spirit to do it again. He wanted the spirit to prove itself. Sure enough, more duct tape was removed and another board came flying towards Doris. After a while, as you could probably imagine how terrifying this would be, Doris couldn't take it anymore. She hated the fact that she couldn't escape whatever followed her. She had hoped it was just something to do with her old house, but this paranormal energy seemed to stalk her wherever she went, and now she felt like a lab rat for Barry and Carrie. She then moved again to San Bernardino, and supposedly the same paranormal activity followed her there. 
Toilets mysteriously flushed and objects moved around the house, and it wasn't long until she decided to move out of California entirely. A rumor spread that she had been impregnated by one of the ghosts, but others say it was one of her boyfriends, which seems more likely. This was probably the type of gossip she was trying to avoid, so she fled to Texas where investigators lost all contact with her. An author by the name Frank De Felita was finishing writing a book on Doris's case called The Entity. He was a firm believer in Doris's story and he wanted to tell it to the world, so he reached out to Carrie and Barry for the last few chapters and he asked them what they would do if they had had more time with Doris. Ideally, Barry would have liked to take Doris into a laboratory, like a true lab rat. They would have recreated her home inside and monitored the whole place from every angle. In order to do this, they would use thermal imaging and devices that could measure electromagnetic activity, and they would record everything inside the controlled laboratory. But of course, that was only just a dream, and clearly Doris didn't want anything to do with the experiments or the investigators anymore. Frank eventually finished the book, and sold the rights to 20th Century Fox, and Doris's story was later turned into a fictional movie that was released in 1982, also called The Entity. Barry and Carrie were hired on as technical advisors, and they were happy with the results. By the time the movie came out, it had been almost a decade since the first hauntings had started, and the two investigators finally came into contact with Doris again. She actually came to one of the screenings of the film. She said she liked it for the most part, but she was worried about the attention it would give her. After everything, she mostly wanted to lie low and put things behind her, Barry hoped she had found some closure through the whole process. Through all the fear and anxiety, he hoped Doris finally lived in peace. And if she hadn't reached out to Carrie in the bookstore all those years ago, she might have still lived with the poltergeist. From their interaction, it seemed like everything was pretty much back to normal, at least as far as they could tell. After seeing her for the last time, Doris went back to her home in Texas and lived a quiet life, and she tried her best to stay out of the spotlight. Doris later died in 1995 from respiratory failure at the age of 58. But her story lives on but much of it is still debated to this day. As far as the sexual assault she experienced, Barry still isn't completely convinced it actually happened. He was willing to give her the benefit of the doubt, but at the end of the day, he thought it might have had something to do with some repressed trauma. In Barry's line of work, he always believes it's really important to be skeptical. Although Frank and Doris's children believe she was assaulted, Barry never found any other evidence besides the bruises. Even though Doris's son Brian said that he had actually seen his mother attacked by up to four different spirits, as well as seeing his mother get thrown around her room and beaten by invisible ghosts, and after the attacks, large baseball-sized bruises formed across her skin. But no one knows what truly happened. After Doris passed, Brian also opened up about his mother's drinking and substance abuse problems, and he's also said she dabbled in the occult lifestyle, which might have opened her up to the hauntings. Brian said that all the kids in the house had also been attacked by paranormal creatures at one point or another. Sometimes the spirits were really detailed, but other times they were foggy or invisible. Each of the kids were pushed, scratched, and bitten over the years. And growing up in a household filled with paranormal violence was rough, to say the least. But there was no doubt in Brian's mind if the spirits were real or not and to this day there are still aspects of Doris's haunting that can't be proved. Investigators like Barry only follow the hard evidence, and he's a firm believer in the law of Occam's razor. The right explanation is usually the simplest one. In the paranormal cases he's investigated, a good amount of events are explained through fraud, hoaxes, overactive imaginations, attention-seeking people looking for easy money, or people who just need counseling. But there are a few that are the real deal. He believes that the most important thing to have in a paranormal case is real, documentation, hard cold evidence. In the case of Doris Byther, they had several photographs and dozens of witnesses who saw the same things at the same time. Since hallucinations are not collective, the green flashes of plasma are still unexplainable. Barry still has no idea what they were, but he believes there was something clearly paranormal about them. Out of the 4,000 cases he's investigated, not many have been convincing. He said that there are only three Mount Everest 
across his case files, and the case of Doris Byther is one of them. He also called this his highest peak. Even decades after the events, the green orbs are still one of the most fascinating things he's ever seen. And he believes that one day, science will be able to prove the existence of the paranormal without a doubt. And the worlds of spirituality, the paranormal and science will all merge together as one. I believe this as well. There are plenty of hoaxes and misinformation to look past, but he believes there's plenty of real evidence seen with an objective eye. In the end, three main theories surround Doris's story. The first is that since Doris played around with the occult throughout her life, she opened up a portal for paranormal spirits to enter the real world. The second is that Doris had some sort of psychic or telekinetic abilities that allowed the spirits to use her as a catalyst to manifest themselves in the real world. For skeptics, the third theory says that Doris's traumatic experiences with men and childhood abuse caused her to project those traumas as spirits. In a sense, they were only subconscious manifestations. Another theory I have is that perhaps this old woman cast a spell, a curse, or something on Doris for some reason, and perhaps that was a source of the paranormal activity. Seems more likely to me that perhaps Doris conjured these spirits herself. But whatever the truth is, Doris, Barry, Carey, and the other 20 or so witnesses all believe they saw the green plasma lights traveling through the house. Plus, of course, there's the photographs. But like most paranormal events, the truth is always up for a debate. Except, of course, when you're the victim of the haunting, then it's real, no matter what. So at the end of the day, was Doris's haunting real? I think just based purely off of the 20 plus witnesses in paranormal investigators, the pictures that we have, I think there is definitely some real manifestations of orbs here. I mean, the arcs of light are difficult to explain away unless there is some sort of camera trick being used here. But again, 20 plus people, are they all lying? Are they all part of this hoax? Seems unlikely to me. I honestly think this is one of the more believable stories of paranormal activity and poltergeist activity. So I'm curious to know what you think about this one. Do you believe Doris? Do you believe that this story is true? Or were all these people and investigators all in on this hoax in order to create this crazy elaborate story that would later be turned into a movie? Was that their motive? I want to know what you think about it. But I'm going to go ahead and wrap up things there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Lights Out Podcast as much as I did. Haunting cases are always my favorites. I'd love to know what other haunting cases I should cover in the future. So if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you like and subscribe and leave me a comment. I'd really appreciate it. I do go and read those from time to time. As well as make sure you're following us across the other platforms. And of course, check out the new Lights Out merch collection before it's gone at milehiremerch.com. But thanks again for hanging with me. I'll see you next week. And until then, lights out, everybody. <laughs>